from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, <clears throat> which is on page 1218, 1218. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Really good to have that read to us by Alistair so skillfully and, and carefully. So 1 Peter 2, 4 to 12. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we pray for our time considering this word and this message. And we pray for our time considering the times that we live in. And we pray for our nation as well. Almighty God, we pray for our government and uh, all those involved as they seek a new Prime Minister. Uh, bless them with wisdom and courage that they will pick a leader who will serve with compassion and who will seek the common good. Uh, we think too of our current Prime Minister, Theresa May, and all whose lives and livelihoods are personally affected by this transition. May they know your grace in uncertainty. And we lift up all in authority in this time of political turmoil in this nation. We recognize that we're divided in our human understanding. In your mercy, please give us your gift of peace. And Lord, we return to this passage. Please help it to be, as it so often is, and as you promise it will be for us, poignant and helpful and relevant as to us, your followers, and those who are seeking, considering you as well. Amen. 
as Calvin has said, I'm Ken Benjamin, I'm senior minister here, and I've been away a couple of weeks. For those of you visiting, um, let me just give a bit of context, and for those of you who are not visiting, let me thank you for your prayers. If you're visiting, we're a Baptist church, and we're part of uh, 2,000 or so Baptist churches in the UK that are part of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, and they have a role within that that is the president of the denomination. I'm playing that role for this year, which means that as part of being away, we've been preaching in different places, speaking to different church leaders. We've been in Teesside and then Tyneside, and then we did do a day off in Durham, so I think that's Wearside, and then we did some things either side of Merseyside, and then we went to the Baptist Assembly, where I officially started, though I've been playing this role in one way or another for a year already, and that was in Telford, which isn't side anything, but I think is the River Severn. So let's say River Severn side. And um, that was where we were officially commissioned. It was great that some of our staff team and uh, some of our leaders and our family were able to be there uh, for that occasion. You were officially allowed two people to pray for you. So what I said was, well, Ellen is my colleague in ministry, so um, can she pray for me? And I think what you're supposed to do is invite sort of really well-known and renowned people to pray for you. And there were one or two I could have asked, but what I said to them was, look, I have two adult children who um, are both believers. I promise you if they both pray, it will be shorter than if two other ministers pray <laughs> or one other minister prays. Would that be okay? And they said yes. So it was a huge privilege to have Zoe and Alex um, who've learnt their faith through some of you in teaching them um, here and, and for them to be there praying. Then you sign the President's Bible, which everybody in our denomination who's ever done um, has done that, and then you, you play in that role. The other photo was um, the mayor who came um, to see us, him in his regalia and me in my lanyard. So I thought that was fairly equal there in, in, in status in, in doing that. Um, thank you for your prayers. We found... Um, churches who really warmed to this message of where do we grow from here and we found churches in a whole range of circumstances already some hugely seeing growth some hugely seeing frustration and decline many who do not have the blessing of the unity that we have here so I keep asking this thing of pray for us they all pray for you by the way wherever we are they all pray for you, which is amazing, and uh, we go on asking them to do so. But go on cherishing and working for the unity that we have here, because it's on that basis that we can do um, what we do. I also find, though, that wherever we go, God's people are somewhat peculiar. And I'm saying that in two senses, but one of those senses is in this passage. And in that sense, we are all peculiar. Um, I took an accidental selfie while I was away. I was just looking at my phone and thinking, OK, where did you get a photo ready? And I accidentally took this picture. But it does remind us that we are all peculiar people. P P Peter says that in this passage, and I'll come to it in a little while. But he also says a number of important things. He says that we are chosen people, as Calvin said, that we are holy, that we are a royal priesthood, that we're stones in a spiritual temple, that we're aliens and exiles on earth and it's the King James version if you're looking for it that says that we're a peculiar people he reminds us how much grace it took for God to take us who were no people in that sense and turn us into special chosen people then he reminds us the last bit that Alistair read to us to act like who we are by abstaining from sin and living good lives before those around us 
if you find this passage hard to follow, one of my handles on it is to say that it starts with something that we should do, the first bit, as you come to him. And we come to him in a variety of ways. We come to him, first of all, for who he is and for what he offers, uh, a route to forgiveness and salvation. And we come to him regularly as through prayer and through worship. Calvin's been leading us to come to him. That's why he started uh, with reading those verses as we began to worship. And it ends with a couple of things we should do. In verse 11, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And the flip side of abstaining from that is the positive Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God when he visits. It's topped and tailed with those things we should do. And in the middle are some truths about who we are and some truths about who God is. That's my handle on getting it. On getting it. When Calvin said, have we all been enjoying this series? I kind of said yes, but I haven't been here. So I'm sure we have been enjoying the series. So this is my first time since we started this letter. So for the benefit of anyone else, let's just recap a little bit. Peter is writing this letter, and we pick up Peter's story, first of all, in the Gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. We know that he's a key leader. We know that he's given the name Peter, and that it means rock. And we know that he has to learn that this message of hope in Jesus is wider than he first thinks. It it implies and includes and fully includes those who are not from a Jewish background. And he ends up being called to go to non-Jewish people and be with them. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel. And this letter was written decades into that mission, into the wider Roman world. So this is a circular letter, the beginning bit tells us that, um, sent to multiple church church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Peter learnt that those Christians in all over that area were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from the Greek and Roman neighbours. So Peter writes this letter to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And what he does, I think is he plays with some Old Testament images that he previously thought only applied to Israel and to Jewish people, and he applies them to all God's people. How God chose the people of Israel and the family of Abraham, um, and how they were in exile, and how now, in a way, some of those images apply to all of us and all the people he's writing to, but even more so. So he plays with the idea of exiles, and he refers to that. And there is the key idea of us being chosen that is in our passage twice and repeated elsewhere. He he refers to the idea that we are a new family and we have a kind of new family identity as God's people. And like I say, there's the repeated theme in verse 4 and verse 9 that we are chosen, a chosen people, which is really important for anyone being persecuted. It's really important for anyone who's feeling rejected And it, again, has this language that is there in the original Old Testament of God's people. He goes on taking Old Testament images, and he says that we are, in effect, the holy people of God, and that we're journeying through a kind of wilderness, that we are the people of the new exodus, who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. And then he says that we are people of a new 
covenant, um, who have God's word buried deep inside us, and so on. So you get the idea. What he's doing is he's saying, in order to encourage them, those things that used to apply just to one particular group now apply to all of you and even more so. In our passage, that continues with some extra images still taken from the Old Testament. He repeats the idea that we're chosen and then he says we, this image about a new temple that we're built on the foundation himself using the language of stones and, and capstone or cornerstone and God as our mighty rock and we're a spiritual temple made up of living stones. And then he uses the language of priests that we are a new kingdom of priests a holy priesthood, and then the language of nation, that those who are serving God are his nation and that we're representatives, actually, to all the nations. Now, by applying all these amazing images to the persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is kind of placing their suffering within a brand new story. If you're suffering, these things really help because... It helps them to know that they are special to God. I guess when I'm visiting different churches, when Sue and I are visiting, we we want other churches to get this. We want them to get how special they are to God. We all need a bit of that, don't we? And up to this time, the Israelites were God's chosen people, but now those who put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah are the chosen ones. And so we've talked a lot about being chosen, and our songs echoed that. So let's think about the temple and this image of stones. There are many Old Testament passages, a good number, that talk about God as our mighty rock and our fortress. And what Peter does is he picks up three references to stones. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And that's from Isaiah 28 and verse 16. And then he picks up another one, the next verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's from Psalms 118 verse 22. And then the next verse again, he picks up his third one. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Back to Isaiah, but a different passage, Isaiah 8 and verse 14. I remember that when Peter is using this rock and stone language, that's what his name now means. So we all living stones and are being built into a spiritual temple. And the word being built into there, the Greek word there, is to construct a building. And it's the same word that Jesus spoke to Peter when he said, and I will build my church. Um, through you in Matthew 16 and verse 18. If all that is a bit confusing, and to be honest, I didn't find it straightforward reading it through several times in the last week or so, I think you can think of it this way, because I think what he's doing is he's playing with this image and he's building multiple things into this image. And then he's saying, it doesn't just apply to Jesus, it also applies to you, you see. So I think what he's doing is he's saying, Jesus is a stone, but he's stretching the image and saying, but he's a living stone. And he's saying, but he was rejected by some, and yet, even though he was rejected, he's chosen and precious. And, he's, and, and this stone is going to make up something really significant that is spiritually needed and is worthwhile. 
And then when you've got all of that, he says, and you're part of that too. So you're a stone, but you're a living stone. You're rejected by some, but you're chosen and precious. And you're going to make something significant as part of this whole thing. And you're spiritually needed and you're worthwhile. Not to the extent of Jesus, obviously, but you're following in his pattern. And if you are being rejected and being persecuted, that's hugely, hugely encouraging. So that's the stone image. And then he has this priesthood image. You also are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, you've got this model of priests being the intermediaries to God. And now we're all these priests. When you read Exodus, actually, the whole priest as intermediaries wasn't God's first plan. It was God's initial desire that all of his chosen people, the Jews, might be priests. You can see that in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, for example. But their fear was, the people of God, was, their fear was such that they wanted somebody else to play that role in place of them, or at least stand in the way of them. So, so, so initially they want Moses to do that. And then what follows is that an order of priesthood was set up with Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons and their descendants. And the priests do act as intermediaries between the people and their holy God, assisting with sacrifices and presenting them before the Lord. It was a high and holy calling. But now in the New Testament, God chooses a new people, a people of faith, and once more he calls us all to be priests. In the Old Testament, the priests offered cattle and sheep and goats and birds and grain and incense. In the New Testament, our offerings are spiritual and from the heart. And so let me go all Baptist on you for a moment because, you know, that's my role now, so I ought to do that. In this verse and in these verses are something that is absolutely key to us. It's people who went before us, like Martin Luther, who obviously much, much wider than a Baptist perspective, who pick this verse up and others and see that we are all called to be a select order of priests in the church. And he came to see that this vision of all God's people being able to relate to God directly through the medium of the Holy Spirit. He picks it up from 1 Corinthians as well. And so we are all priests and ministers wherever we are. It's a key value to us that my job isn't more spiritual than your job and that wherever you are is your ministry. And God has called you to that at home, paid or unpaid, retired, in teaching, in self-employment, in schools, in hospitals, in a whole variety of different contexts, um, in friendships, in all of those areas, in families, that you are a priest, you're a minister. And together we're part of a nation, actually, but in, in the minister language, um, we are there um, together. When it says in this passage that um, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, I'm reading from verse 9, God's special possession, it is there that the King James Version says we are a peculiar people. Um, the NIV says a people belonging to God. Um, I know it means slightly different things with peculiar people. I've seen probably both versions of peculiar people as I've travelled around. The word peculiar people can mean um, 
strange, unusual, odd, can't it? They're peculiar in that way. But, and there's a, there's a version of peculiar that we don't use quite so much in modern English that kind of means um, distinct. It means um, a unique characteristic. So you might see like a gymnast who's got a move that other people can't do. And they say, oh, they're going to do this particular move. And it's peculiar to them. Nobody else can do this move yet. Um, and you are that kind of peculiar people in that you are distinct. There is something unique about them. Actually, there's a third definition of peculiar, which is to do with the Church of England. And they have, if a church isn't in the jurisdiction of a diocese, um, then that's a peculiar church. So um, Westminster Abbey is a peculiar church. And St Paul's Cathedral is a peculiar church. That's of no relevance whatsoever. I just I can't help but give you that anorak fact. Except for I wonder whether the Church of England have got that phrase from this idea. That if something is distinct and separate, it is, it is peculiar. And, and Peter is wanting them and therefore us to know that there's something distinct about us. That, that is different, and he's going to get onto the fact that other people should, should notice it. And then he says, effectively, you were once outsiders, and now you're insiders. And I think what Peter is doing is he's playing on another Old Testament image. I think he's playing on some of the language from Hosea here. In Hosea, one of the minor prophets in the 8th century BC, his prophecy is directed towards the rebellious northern kingdom of Israel, which would soon go into exile. And he's called to make a powerful point to his hearers. God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute called Goma, um, who is unfaithful to him. And figuratively, this also portrays the unfaithfulness of God's people, you see. And so what happens is that Goma has two children, and God tells Hosea to give them names that still haven't made it into the top 100 best baby names in any given year. Um, they're Rahama and Lo-Ami. Now, Rahama means not loved, and Lo-Ami means not my people. And then Hosea prophesies about a time when Israel, or perhaps wider than Israel, will be reconciled back to God. And need to find the original reading but what what it says is in Hosea is this I will plant for her for myself in the land I will show my love to the one I called not my not my loved one I will say to those called not my people you are my people and they will say you are my God and then Peter I think playing on that says in verse 10 once you were not a people but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then it gets to the practical bit at the end again. And Peter says we're to abstain from, turn away from the things that, that can eat us away and that are sinful and then we are to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day when he visits us. 
Pagans is too strong in our culture when we read that. Um, we think of a particularly negative association. So let's just say, live such good lives among those who are not yet believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So if we take on board some of the concepts of who God is and who we are in the middle of that passage, we surely have to take this on board, that this is what we're called to do, to turn away from what is wrong that can so easily eat us up and to live such good lives that other people notice it. A big part of what I'm doing going elsewhere is to encourage people in all of their lives to have a noticeable difference and that people aren't expecting perfect, but if that noticeable difference is there, then that's the key for us. It isn't going to be some brilliant new programme. It's going to be about all of us being priests wherever we are, you see. And being into golf, one of the stories I tell is about a golfer um, a professional golfer I've met called Anders Forsbrand. Anders Forsbrand, if you've never heard of him, I don't blame you. He was on the European tour, and he has won on the European tour. He's now on the Masters um, tour. He was once vice captain of the Ryder Cup, so you might have come across him uh, that way. But he's a Christian. And so we met him at a Christian event, and we, he was talking about how he became a Christian. And he became a Christian through a golfer who you probably would have heard of, whether you're a believer, uh, not you're, whether you're a believer, whether you're into golf or not, um, whether you're a believer that golf is a good sport or not. And um, he became a Christian through Bernard Langer. Now, Bernard Langer um, is a really well-known golfer, and he's won the Masters he's twice, and he still qualifies, even though he's now well into the Masters door, still qualifies in some of the regular tour tournaments. So we said, tell us more. How did you become a Christian through Bernard Langer, knowing that Bernard Langer is this brilliant golfer. And he said, well, I toured with him for years and years. And the thing that struck me was, Bernard Langer is a better person than he is a golfer. And I had to find out why. Live such good lives among those who are not yet believers, the pagans, it actually says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day when he visits. So I'm speculating that he saw Bernard Langer when things went really well for him, when he won tournaments and when he was being celebrated. But he also saw him on a really bad day, when things went really badly for him, um, when he was mistreated by other people, actually, probably, and when things were not exactly how they should be for him, and he was still good then. And he wasn't expecting perfect. He was just expecting enough of a difference. When I first started um, a job after university, I worked for uh, a department store that is now closing department stores. It was doing well in my day. And I was outed as a Christian on day one. I probably would have done this anyway, but it was a graduate thing. And um, it was one of those things where, as an icebreaker exercise, 12 graduates joining this company, you interview somebody else, you have to listen really carefully to them, and then somebody else has to tell your story, kind of thing. So I tell this person about, you know, that I'm a Christian and I do various things. And they, so they then tell everybody else that I'm a Christian. And then with these people, we keep gathering together every so often for two years. And I was really grateful that it started that way. Because from then on, I, I know that I'm not perfect. I made mistakes in, 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 you know, in, in a whole variety of, of ways in, in that context. But, but, but I know what I'm trying to do as well as doing a good job. I'm trying to live such a good life that 
though they might accuse me of doing wrong, they might see enough good deeds, not perfect, enough good deeds, and glorify God, turn to God, point to him. Um, my experience of those non-believers is that they're much more likely to forgive me doing wrong than some believers. They just, the standards are different anyway. And, and so, but they, they notice something. And, and then, so that's my prayer for each of us, wherever you are, um, whoever you find yourself with. So in this passage, Peter reminds us that we are a chosen people, that we are holy and royal priesthood, that we are stones in a spiritual temple, that we're aliens and exiles on earth. He reminds us how much grace it took for God to take us from people who are no people to people who are special and chosen. And then he reminds us to act like who we are by abstaining from sin and living good lives before those around us. Let's pray. So Lord, in the multiplicity of different thoughts there, I pray that something would hit home for us of who we are in you. And I pray that you would help us to turn away from anything that's wrong in our lives, that's persistent, that's not helping. Um, that's not helping our journey with you. And I pray that you would help us, your spirit living in us, to live such good lives that those around us notice and don't just attribute it to us being good people, but attribute it to you, a God-given difference, that they may come to glorify you when their time is up or when you return and visit us. Amen.